You're listening to the Perch Pod from Perch Perspectives. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Perch Pod. As usual, I'm your host. I'm Jacob Shapiro. I'm also the founder and chief strategist of Perch Perspectives, which is a human-centric business and political consulting firm. Joining me on the podcast today is Mary Sharaf. She is a graduate student in comparative politics and political theory at the University of Notre Dame. Her work examines processes of migrant integration and identity politicization. Um, I'd reached out to Mary, I don't know, maybe over a year ago to, to have her on the podcast, and she was just beginning an interesting research project about how border closures were affecting COVID-19. Um, and she's completed some of that data and had some of it published. So she was good enough to come on and share some of the surprising and insightful aspects of that data with us. Uh, she also let me pick her brain about some of her doctoral research on what she's doing in Albania and the Greek minority in Albania, which I thought was interesting and hopefully you guys will think is interesting too. Um, otherwise, hope everybody's taking care, staying healthy. Uh, you can check us out at perchperspectives.com for more information on the services we offer. If you want to subscribe to our free newsletter or find out anything more about us, you can also always write to us at info at perchperspectives.com if you have questions comments, concerns, or you just want somebody to read your thoughts about life. It's what I do. I go through all the emails and I read them. It's I'm always there. So um, otherwise, take care. Cheers. And let's get on to Mary. Mary, thank you so much for uh, for joining the podcast. It's a pleasure having you here. It's really great to be here. Um, we've been trying to do this for a while, and I'm glad we <laughs> our schedule is finally uh, linked up to do it. And we're going to start by talking about um, some research that you recently uh, got published in Nature, which congratulations on that. It's extremely impressive. Um, and the, to me, the takeaway from your research was really interesting and really thought provoking. It was this idea that um, you guys have, and I'll let you, ex- well, how, how about let, and before I say anything, explain just kind of what you have been researching and when this project started. Yes. So um, before when you reached out, I was just launching this project. Um, so I was, you know, flattered because it's always great when somebody else is interested in your work. Um, but I, I didn't know anything. So that, that was why I was launching the project. I was pretty overwhelmed um, by the pandemic and especially by the number of border closures that were popping up all around the world. Um, so I decided to start counting them and I wanted to visualize them in a map first, just kind of see what's going on over time. Um, and then I realized, you know, this data doesn't exist. No, no person is collecting this information systematically. Um, so I might have to do that. And that's when I reached out to my colleagues and my former students um, and asked if, if they would be willing to help me start doing this systematically. Um, and I got 20 responses in a couple of days of people just willing to volunteer their time for this social good project. Um, so yeah, we have been working on it for a year now, um, more than a year, um, and we we just got published in the Nature Portfolio um, under Scientific Data, which is great. This this publication venue um, we sought because it publishes data sets that are supposed to be important for research that's happening right now and for future pandemic research. Um, so yeah, it's we were not published in Nature. I, I love that we get that stamp, but we were published in um, Scientific Data, which is under the Nature Portfolio. Um, and 
did I answer your question? You did, and I, I mean, it's 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 all nature to me. So that, that that's yeah. Fine. No, I I love it, and um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I think I think you should just take it and run with it. But um, <laughs> am am I correct in saying that um, were, were you guys tracking inter like um borders inside countries at all, or was it primarily just looking at borders between states? We we focused on international border closures. Um, so. There, there are not any projects, to my knowledge, that cover um, county-level internal closures um, that have filled that data set. I think there's been some projects that started, but that, that just would take more time than we had. Yeah, and pr- probably would break the internet with the amount of data you'd have to collect. Um, well, and so tell me what the key takeaway was or what the most surprising takeaway was um, from the data that you guys have been gathering. Sure. So the key takeaway that uh, that I'm interested in right now is that several, several, more than 200 of these border closures are still in place. Um, And initially, I kind of expected that they would be reversed, um, and many of them were, but we still see new border closures in the past couple of months. um, And I'm I'm watching the ones that haven't. that haven't had a, an end date recorded um, and trying to see what's going on there. And I think I, I mentioned this to you before, um, we, we ran analysis on the border closures with SARS-CoV-2 spread um, as our outcome variable and tried to see if these border closures were actually leading to um, a reduction in spread, which is the idea. Um, and we set it up in such a way that we can compare um, countries that have similar underlying factors, um, healthcare capacities, that sort of thing. And uh, we, we looked at it every which way and just have not found um, border closures to correspond with a reduction in SARS-CoV-2 spread. Um, so we um, used some other projects data for other types of policies like um, lockdowns. And for lockdowns, we did find a pretty clear um, correlation in the data between lockdowns being introduced two weeks later, three weeks later, um, a pretty clear, sharp reduction in um, recorded spread. So that's what we're working on now. Um, and that's what's under peer review at the moment. So I can't claim it with any certainty until we hear back, but um, it, it seems like we have a pretty strong case that the border closures themselves didn't lead to a reduction in spread, um, but lockdowns did have some sort of effect. It's a pretty remarkable conclusion, and I feel like it kind of goes against, um, well, I, I hate the phrase common sense because it's not common and it doesn't actually mean anything, but when you look at countries like, say, New Zealand, which had both a pretty strong lockdown policy domestically and then closed its borders pretty tightly. Um, Or even a place like Vietnam, although we can talk about how Delta complicates all the data that you've been gathering maybe a little bit later on. But help, help me figure out how that sort of anecdotal or more qualitative data, like a story about New Zealand, how does that fit in to what the, the types of data that you're gathering? Because it seems to me that in some cases, you know, stopping international travel would theoretically keep COVID-19 out. And your data is saying, no, that's that's actually a faulty assumption. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I agree from, from a high level, if you actually could close all of the borders at the same time, 
um, and reduce human movement across them um, for a virus that travels from human to human, that would have an impact. Um, so what we did is we kind of organized our data in such a way that we have complete closures, um, we have partial closures, and we also have under the category of partial closures, um, bans that were introduced specifically targeting countries that had really high levels of COVID spread. Um, and we also have other types of policies which completely um, are counterintuitive, like banning countries based on their citizen, banning incoming travelers based on their citizenship status um, instead of their travel history sort of thing. Um, so we actually looked at it by subtype to see if, you know, maybe complete closures worked. You know, maybe um, the, the targeted bans worked at countries that had a, a reduced COVID spread. And we just could, couldn't find um, that correlation to um, bear out. So it, it's not that we thought it was impossible um, for these policies to work. You know, I think um, the, the most likely outcome I expected would actually reduce COVID spread was um, all the island countries closing their borders. Um, however, even with, with island countries, we don't really see that at the aggregate level, um, the bans corresponded with um, SARS-CoV-2 spread. So I, I, I don't, I don't, uh, I think, you know, the timeline matters. We haven't really broken it down as systematically as I would like to by um, island countries that introduced it early, early, early in the timeline and those that did not. Maybe those ones did. Um, but at the aggregate level, I think um, the takeaway is that a border closure on its own is not enough. Um, so I am not totally familiar, you know, just from the news, New Zealand's approach, but I, I believe that they um, not only closed their borders, but also had lockdowns and all sorts of other targeted measures. Um, so, so something of that nature um, is, is the next kind of research question that people can pose to our data set. Is another potential assumption or conclusion based on your data that, um, that sort of official border closures um, are don't work as well as maybe countries think they do, that maybe the world is even more globalized than we were thinking about it before and that we should think about borders as just more porous in general because the closures weren't actually stopping flows of humans? Or, or Yes, just the I think that's, that's a very good point. Um, and you can also break this question down in our data set because complete closures... Um, Sounds like, you know, the border closed overnight, but in reality, there, there always has to be some sort of exception. Um, so every single country that introduced complete border closure had some sort of exception for trade, um, some sort of exception for essential workers, um, humanitarian aid had to get through. So there was always some sort of essentials level exception. There was also um, countries that were accepted. Um, so we allow in our data set up to 10 countries um, to go through for complete closures because this is just how how the border closures were operating in practice. Um, and then other exceptions. Um, there were also exceptions for workers coming through. Um, all, all, all these sort of things on the, on the ground level um, were, I think, harder to implement than we would think. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the entire pandemic has been a has been an implementation nightmare in some ways. Um, I know you said that you guys still have work to do in terms of sort of time lapsing the data and thinking about it in terms of timeline. But I was wondering if 
the emergence of Delta or if different variants in general um, changed things appreciably in what you were gathering and what you were observing and whether there are any even preliminary observations or conclusions you can make about um, sort of, you know, OG COVID and Delta COVID, which seems to be a very, very different animal. Yeah, no. So I, we definitely saw a drop in border closures before Delta was known. Um, and I guess it became prominent around July. Um, and, and after that, we did see countries responding, introducing border closures again, um, and also rolling back kind of just requiring the vaccine to enter the country. Um, so th- there was a pretty large response to that. Um, and it's also been delayed for some countries. Um, just colloquially, I haven't looked at it that specifically lately, but I, I believe countries that um, had really low testing capacities and low healthcare capacities um, are just now kind of responding to Delta. Um, so that, that impacts me specifically because my research is based in Albania um, and I'm planning to return. Um, and when I was first visiting Albania in July, it was like there was no pandemic at all. Um, people didn't wear masks. It was very straightforward to pass through the border. Um, and now I understand that when I go through, I'll need to show my vaccine card. Um, and I believe the country also just rolled back in-person classes for universities. Um, so it, it very much feels like 2020 all over again in these parts of the world. Yeah, and in some ways, um, you know, here in New Orleans, we were very early on in the Delta in the Delta wave, mm-hmm. and it's starting to go down. It's it's so it is so contagious that it seems to burn through the population pretty quick. But while it does, it's it's kind of a big deal. But is it also um, is did the international border closures? Um, I, I guess it didn't affect COVID nineteen whether it was Delta or not. I mean, the basic point of your research at the end of the day is that um, doesn't matter about the contagiousness of the variant. Doesn't really matter. You know, all that stuff doesn't matter. What really matters is that the international border closures by themselves uh, were not really successful in lowering COVID nineteen cases. Is that a fair way to sum it up? Yes, I, I mean that's my my takeaway from the data. Um, if, if we're asking at a country level, um, then certainly countries were concerned with the Delta variant and the the amount of breakthrough cases um, with vaccinated populations. So I think that explains some of the the new border closures being reintroduced. Um, but uh, yeah, I I so far infer from the data that it's not the most um, effective response. Once the virus has already entered your country, um, it, it doesn't seem to make a difference to, to introduce a new um, kind of blanket, complete closure against incoming travel. Um, I, I think reductions make sense. Um, but yeah, I've, I'm kind of holding off on making large sweeping claims because I haven't compared um, introducing border closures with other policy combinations. Um, and, and I, I don't know if um, a combination is the right answer or, or if, you know, just, just a lockdown for the next pandemic, which hopefully is in a hundred years, um, maybe just lockdowns would be more effective than dealing with international travel at all. Um, so one, one thing that's interesting to me is that the World Health Organization um, advised against these international border closures. 
um, number one, saying that, that they probably don't work more than, you know, um, introducing screenings at the border would, um, but also because of the immense impact on trade. Um, and, and despite that advice, nearly every country in the entire world introduced a border closure around March 2020. Um, and, and since then, there's been 1,600 um, border closures. So what, one kind of interesting takeaway is that nobody listened to the World Health Organization at all on that. Yeah, although that's, I mean, that that's complicated, right? Because the World Health Organization's initial takes on COVID-19 were pretty wrong when you look at them. And they were pretty wrong because they were trusting that the Chinese were being honest about the data that was coming out. Now, I'm not one of these crazies who thinks that the Chinese manufactured COVID-19 in a lab. But when you do go back to sort of late December, early January 2020, when you know Chinese social media is starting to pick up on, hey, something weird is going on here, and China's giving some indications that there is some kind of disease, and they're, but they're telling the WHO, oh, it's not that big of a deal. Like we really think we have this under control, and we're going to be able to handle it. We're not, we're not that worried about it. Um, I think in some ways that poisoned the well with the WHO because people um, saw what was beginning to happen, and I think there was a lack of trust. And I mean, you know this better than anybody, probably once. Once fear kicks in in a population, um, governments are really, it's, it's hard for them to do much, especially if you're in a democracy, because people are afraid and you have to react to that fear and rationality and things like that don't really apply when it gets to that case. So I, I think some of that has to, has to affect w what the WHO is going to do forward. And I'm not saying that to rag on the WHO, by the way. If anything, it shows us the need to kind of build up the WHO and make it even stronger so that it has the right data collection tools and has the right perspective to do things. But I wonder if that had an effect on it. Yeah, no, I, I think that I agree with that. Um, trust was eroded in the World Health Organization at the early stage of the pandemic for a variety of reasons, some of which I agree with and some of which I don't. Um, mm. But I, I just thought it was interesting that they were super clear about international border closures um, not being something that countries should do. Um, and, and that to me was the watching the number of border closures um, roll out across the world was the clearest indication that nobody was listening to this organization anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, what can you do? Like you said, I hope there's there's not another pandemic for another hundred years, but that's probably not the case. Um, before we sort of dive into Albania and let me pick your mind about other things, is, is there anything about the data itself that I haven't asked you that you want you want to be sure to talk about or you want listeners to know about? Um, sure. So I think that the the category visa bans is something to watch. Um, so I've, I've taken the approach of. Um, gathering the data first and also looking at the health impacts of the policies. Um, but what's next on my agenda as a political scientist is to ask whether some of these policies were introduced for political reasons. Um, and I think the category of visa bans will be telling in that regard. So um, especially policies that, that don't relate to um, countries that have a high amount of COVID spread, but are really targeted against specific countries' populations um, and don't have end dates, um, I would invite listeners and researchers to, to take a look at that category and help me try to explain why those policies are still in place. Hmm. Well, hopefully we'll be able to get you some help with that. Um, 
moving on, tell us a little bit about what you're, what are you up to in Albania of all places? Um, okay. So my PhD started um, three years before the pandemic came to the world. And I was interested in the, the formation of um, the Greek minority identity in Albania. Um, I was interested in the Greek minority diaspora around the world, um, but I became interested in it in Southern Albania because of this really fascinating policy uh, where the dictator essentially allowed some groups to keep their identity and others um, he removed all their rights, whether you know closing their schools, taking down road signs, um, and punishing people for saying that they're Greek. And that was that policy was rolled out in 1945, um, and it was kept in place for the duration of the dictatorship, um, which Hoxha died in 1985, and the regime collapsed around 1991. Um, so I'm I'm measuring essentially the the impact of this policy across generations, um, and the marker that I'm using is what people name their child, their first child, um, which is pretty much the only mark of control that families had under the dictator um, for expressing their identity. Um, and the other thing that I've learned recently by going to cemeteries. Um, in this region is that people um, also will add crosses at their family's grave or a water bottle to mark um, the Muslim identity. So I'm essentially capturing the outcome of this policy um, by taking pictures of graves. Um, it sounds like a, like an interesting thing to be doing, to be traipsing around Albania, taking pictures of, of graveyards. Do you ever run, run into any trouble with people asking you what on earth you're doing? Um, yeah, so there's, there's an interesting sort of person that hangs around cemeteries, and it's, it's always kind of weird. Um, but I, I usually am with a local guide um, who will, you know, explain to the person that I'm a researcher and I'm... Um, using the data properly, and it's it's usually fine. Um, obviously, out of respect, I I won't take pictures of graves if somebody's there mourning. Um, but there's there's a lot of villages, um, and not a lot of people around, so it's it's pretty straightforward. What um what if anything? So I mean, you 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 talked a little bit about the dictatorship in Albania and the regime collapse. Um, do you have any thoughts about the current Albanian government? I mean, Edi Rama's, he's a, I would call him a controversial figure. He, he generates a fair amount of opinion, I think, when you bring him up. Um, do, do you have any feelings about him or about Albania's attempt to get into the European Union or anything like that? Um, yeah, so I, I'm interested most, I guess, in Albania's um, entry to the European Union. Um, and, and I haven't written or designed my contemporary <laughs> chapter yet. Um, so that, that's not um, on my agenda at the moment, but there will be a, a contemporary chapter. Um, it's just, yeah, not, not well-rounded at all yet. Well, that's okay. This is a place for, uh, for non-well-rounded thoughts and ideas to, to come out in some ways. Um, but yeah, no, we won't push you on that. If no, it's all right. So I think the contemporary component um, will, will be less about the current government and more about the population. Um, and so my kind of hypothesis for my research, um, for my dissertation, is that um, the Hoxha era policy, you know, the dictator's policy toward the Greek minority and toward minorities in general in Albania, um, will 
forge a not only ethnic identity um, that we can measure, but also shape political attitudes. So after I collect this cemetery data, I'm going to um, register a pre-analysis plan that kind of states my exact hypotheses. Um, And then I'm going to roll out a survey, hopefully in person, but we'll see. Um, And the the survey will actually measure political attitudes left and right um, and, and see if my hypothesis is right, that the groups that did not receive the designation to maintain their identities um, become more likely to be right-wing. And those who received this communist designation that you can keep your minority as long as you become communist, um, I I think that actually those groups of people will transmit more leftist attitudes. Um, But yeah, we'll we'll see. The data will bear out. (laughs) That's interesting. And, and you sort of already alluded to religion and that interesting thing about the crosses versus the, the water bottles and things like that is, has there, I guess you're also going to be looking at whether there's a distinct change in that. I would assume that the communists had a, <laughs> took a rather dim view of, of religion, which is interesting in a country like Albania, which I, it's majority Muslim, isn't it? Yeah. So historically, um, majority Muslim with a pretty strong contingent of Christians, um, as well as some Catholics. And it, yeah, it's a, an understatement that they, the Albanian Hoxha era regime took a very strong, um, they actually banned religion in 1966. I think it's one of the only countries to actually ban religion. Um, and so the, that marks the second portion of Hoxha's regime, which became much more harsh um, and still implemented the same policy toward the minority. You, know, you could still be Greek, but you, you could no longer express orthodoxy. Um, mm. So, yeah, I think there, there's not a lot of information on this. Um, there, there has been surveys that are great in Albania, but um, the, the census, for instance, in 2011 was highly contested because Greeks weren't really allowed, unless they were inside the minority zone, to register themselves as as ethnic Greeks. Um, and there was a fine if you um, said you were Greek outside of the zone. Um, and the general information that I've seen either um, marks a resurgence in religion in Albania, which corresponds to other communist or uh, post-communist states, um, or it says, you know, Albania is a very atheist state because of um, their experience with this regime, which did, you know, mark out differences or erode differences um, in religion and just give people a a really um, atheistic perspective. Um, However, I I don't know if that's the case. That's kind of what what I'm asking um, is how how long the how long it's possible for. Um, an identity to be transmitted only at the family level um, in, mm. under conditions of a dictatorship. And the, the water bottle thing is new to me because I don't, I don't have a Muslim background. Um, and I'm not sure if that's something that Muslims do around the world or if that's just something that um, happened in Albania because it's so understated um, as a way to express your identity. Do you, I assume it's pretty hard to get a sense of how large the Greek minority in Albania was. Is that correct? Yes. So that's also um, a small contribution of of my dissertation. Um, I 
don't know that there's there's been a count of the Greek minority um, since maybe 1913 um, when the Greek state did it. Um, what I am doing to try to get a realistic count is I've accessed a um, I've accessed the 1930 registry. And it doesn't tell me whether people are Greek or Albanian, but I can tell by the names because um, Albanian names have a different etymological background than Greek names do. Um, so I'm having an RA who's Albanian kind of tell me which ones are Albanian. And I'm going through and saying from my Greek background, um, which ones are Greek and also taking from um, the classics in Greek, you know, you can see all these ancient Greek names, pretty distinguishable. Um, and, and there are, of course, overlaps and lots of families were intermarried at the time. Um, and lots of names were used in both Albanian and in Greek. Um, so, sorry, I'm losing my train of thought. Um, <laughs> remind me your question. Oh, I'm, 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 no, I'm on the train with you. I was, I was, uh, asking whether there's good data on the size of the Greek minority yes, Albania. Yes, yes. It sounds like. So, sorry, sounds I'm like, telling no. you what I'm doing. So in 1930, I'm gathering the breakdown of what I think will be the best possible measure for um, the Greek minority, as well as intermarried families and Albanian um, Muslim families. And then 1945, there's a census that Hoja took, um, and that's in the archives, which I'm going to access in a week. Um, and I'm not sure that it's going to be as helpful as the 1930 census, but uh, if, if he has first names in there, um, that'll be really helpful. <laughs> <laughs> and then the actual 1945 to 1985 is a black box. Um, there's you know a lot of missing persons, um, and it, it's just really hard to measure. So that's where my cemetery idea comes in. Um, I think it's one of the best measures what somebody names their kid during a period um, that there's not a lot of other information. So that's where the cemetery data comes in to track over time how names were impacted by the policy. Since the situation was so bad in Albania, is is there another, I mean, were, were, were the Greek minority leaving? Were they going back to Greece? Were they blocked from doing that? Was there a stigma inside Greece against you know, Greeks coming from Albania, is, is that of any help to you at all there as well? Or is, does that not really help give a clear picture of what's going on? Yeah. So you mean migration as a measure? Mm -hmm. um, and what do you mean during the dictatorship? Yeah. Well, I, I was thinking in your black box period, but in general, I mean, if things were, were so bad in Albania, um, I would think that the Greek minority would would want to get out of Dodge um, yes. and that they would be welcome in Greece, but maybe that's not a, maybe I'm missing something. No, you're, you're right that it's a good measure, but um, so we, we do have pretty good data on that. Um, part, of, part of my design actually rests on what Hoja did at the border between Albania and Greece, uh, which is he, he is the first one to enforce it. Um, and mm. so I, I'm comparing not only um, people who experienced the policy in Albania, but I'm also capturing this data across the border in Greece because before you could just freely move back and forth and many people did. Um, but overnight, he essentially, you know, anybody who lived in Kosovo, anybody who lived in Greece could no longer enter Albania. Um, and 
of course, people escaped, but we have we have a record of that. Most most of that is available in our report. Um, and yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, what it helped me do is establish my case for the design because um, if you speak to people in Albania about the Greek minority policy, they would say, you know, we were repressed. Um, we weren't actually able to access it as, as you know, our human rights were oppressed. Um, but but a part of my design rests on the fact that they did actually receive rights, whereas people outside the minority zone did not. And you have these defectors during the Hoja period coming out and saying, I'm in the Greek minority. And yeah, our, our rights were actually recognized. Um, and also we wanted to leave because it was a horrible regime. Um, so th- th- those sort of testimonies do exist, but they're very few and far between. Fascinating. All right, cool. Well, Mary, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and enlightening us. And um, I hope your research continues to go, go well. I'll have to have you back on soon. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of The Perch Pod. If you haven't already, you can find us under the name The Perch Pod on every major streaming platform. Subscribe for downloads, follow us, all that good stuff. Uh, if you have feedback on this episode or on any episode, you can email us at info at perchperspectives.com. I can't promise that we'll reply to every single email that comes in, but I read every single one that comes in and I love hearing from listeners, so please don't be shy. Uh, you can find us on social media. Our Twitter handle is at Perchspectives because we love a good pun. Uh, we're also on LinkedIn under Perch Perspectives. Most importantly, please check out our website. It's www.perchperspectives.com. Besides being able to find out more information about the company, the services that we provide, and even to read samples of our work, you can also sign up for our twice a week newsletter on the most important political developments in the world. It's free. All you have to do is provide your email address. And even if you don't want to do that, you can read the post for free on our blog. Thanks again for listening. Please spread the word about Perch Perspectives and the Perch Pod, and we'll see you out there.